Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. I'm John Vecchione. I'm here as always with Mark Chenoweth. And uh, last week, we, we discussed a motion to dismiss that we had made in the case of FTC versus PPO, our clients who the FTC uh, has accused of uh, a deception claim in selling um, dietary supplements, mainly uh, vitamin D, vitamin C, that sort of thing. And um, we talked about Humphrey's executor last week, but there's another big issue in this case. And I think it it is becoming a bigger and bigger issue across many different areas of government action. And that is First Amendment rights to say what you think about something. And we've seen in our cases that we talk about with social media, and there was just a Senate hearing on it this week, actually, uh, of uh, the government putting pressure on all these social media companies to take off messages they don't like. And one of them was on COVID, just like the FTC here uh, says that the client saying that uh, vitamin D and C help your body resist viruses, which they do, um, <laughs> is is somehow um, deceptive. And so- um, That's a controversial claim, John. I, I know, I know, it's terrible um, in any event. So- so we've seen in these hearings that many, many uh, legislatures, even even when the uh, some of the social media people were like, you know, we shouldn't have banned that Hunter Biden stuff, and we made a mistake here or there, and then the questions came in, and it was like, no, you didn't, no, you didn't go do it, go back and do it again. So there's a lot of um, apps. There's not even any. Um, Shame, it seems, in in wanting to stop speech that you don't like, even for government actors. And I think what we're seeing here in this FTC v. PPO case is another example of it. But it raises questions about a couple of doctrines that that the judiciary has come up with. And um, in this case, um, our client had a uh, product that she, that PPO and, and she, Margaret Lewis, were thinking of selling called uh, COVID resist. And they sent a letter to the FTC and they said, what do you think about this? And the FTC sent them back a, a, a bewildering letter with lots of stuff in it. And they said, well, I don't know what that means, but I don't think I want to go forward with this. They don't appear to think very much about it. So yeah, so he does. <laughs> or, she doesn't go forward with it and um, never does anything. But she put out, she had the product COVID resist on a website, never sold anything, not any action taken at all. Just here's, what Zero I'm thinking bottles. of doing. Yeah, here's what I'm thinking of doing. And we get a complaint that's, that is um, an amend complaint because at first they said she sold, but but they they uh, rightfully withdrew that. But they tucked tail when you uh, <laughs> yeah, but the, when you barked at them. Yes, but the, but the key thing is the FTC still believes that with no action, the mere speech can be penalized by them. And it's a civil case, but it has sort of badges and incidences of deception, which is, which is fraud. And so, and you have to plead, you know, as strongly as you do for fraud. So 
Um, what's interesting here, and it's also interesting with commercial speech doctrine, is that for many years, uh, starting, I'd say, in the 20s, but even maybe in the 19th century, commercial speech was given less um, protection than other speeches under the Constitution. And for, for some reason, particularly in the 20s and the 30s, they said, ah, really, this is to protect just political speech. And obviously, that broke away during the 50s and 60s when, you know, all the naked dancing speech cases came in, right? So that's not political speech, but it was it was found to be uh, protected speech. And so now, so then the Supreme Court expression, John expression, right? Exactly. Um, I did. I, I made it dismiss. I sounded a little dismissive with the naked <laughs> dancing. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, but in any event, um, but I was always like some of the billboards were pretty uh, yeah, expressive. I know. That. Yeah, exactly. So the, the thing is here, though, but obviously the First Amendment concerns that came up in the 60s and 70s expanded First Amendment doctrine um, and 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 made it more protective of speech. And then you started to see wearing away of the co commercial speech doctrine, which I think should really have to go, but there are still parts of it left. I would, I would disagree with you on that. I think it's dead, but, uh, okay. but, but, but please uh, go ahead. I, the Ninth Circuit's trying to keep it alive. Right, it's, exactly. it's dead. Right. It is dead after, after the town of Gilbert, in right. my opinion. Uh, and, and, and that, and, and certainly, um, but they haven't announced it. Right. It, it's it's a matter of whether they announce it. It's just like, uh, you know, we all th we all thought Korematsu was dead for a long time until they announced it. Right. And then and then they they um, and also I will I will also say, what's the other one that they had to announce? Was, oh, um the 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 religious liberty case no one could ever lemon lemon, lemon right test, yeah. so the lemon test was was the zombie right walking around until it was actually they got a van helsing stake through it eventually <laughs> um or got its head i guess you kill the brain to kill the zombie i mean i used the wrong undead killer right. there but anyway so um to brush up on your dnd <laughs> I, do, I do but in any event so um so they're still going with this but uh with no action, with, with no activity, with just saying something about something that induces no purchase or anything like that, it, it seems to me because of that, because of that, uh, those Supreme Court cases, this is completely unallowable. But it's interesting to me that the government is undeterred. They they are, move full steam ahead with no concern one way or another. They say, well, look, this is just like. You know, uh, we can we can protect the consumers by uh, keeping them from speech that does not induce action. I don't think that's right. And I also think that um, I think expressions hair design means that that that's that you're right about that. I mean, it's just there is a distinction between speech and conduct. And the right. Supreme Court has said you can't touch the speech. Right. And so um, I think I think that uh, that's what much of this case is about. And there are other things. But but. You know those cases. You know they exist, and there are California cases that uh, that we've cited, uh, thinking that um, I feel the district judges of, of California um, look longingly at some Supreme Court cases, but they look <laughs> with extreme care at the Ninth Circuit because all the cases go to the Ninth Circuit, but not all the cases go to the Supreme Court. Very, very few. Right. So, but the, even the Ninth Circuit says that there is. Um, there are strong First Amendment protections for commercial speech, which at least that sounds good, right? So, um, so yeah, there was a there was a case was it City of Berkeley or or uh, 
or Oakland, somewhere in that vicinity where the they were trying to put uh, warning labels on was it billboards? I I, I want to say, uh, and that got that got shot yeah. down. I can't uh, I can't recall, but I have always thought that the ninth I've always thought the Ninth Circuit was pretty good on a lot of these things. Actually, after the Berkeley free speech movement, it takes a while for this for the courts to change direction from whatever the zeitgeist was, and and so. Um, so to the extent that these um, government actors are all saying no more, no, no more speech protection for you, you're a misinformer, um, that uh, the courts are, should be, for a lot of reasons, should be slower to, to take that up. And I think they have so far. So, um, but I do find it interesting. Once again, the administrative agencies appear not to care about any of those cases. They, they don't, they don't seem to. Um, worry about them one way or another. Um, they just go ahead and say, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna charge you with this, and we're gonna make you defend against it." And I think that they're gonna get a brushback pitch here, and I certainly hope they do, because um, there are there are many many things that you say in in uh, commercial speech. Like one of them that I love is the doctrine that it, since they know since the courts know that salesmen are going to do certain things. They've actually said that, that there are certain words that are mere puffery so that they can't do when you say something's the greatest, you can say anything's the greatest because, um, and, and I, I think there's a politician who used that word quite frequently, who used to be a salesman. I think he, <laughs> and, think he used it hugely. And, exactly. And so you can say, this is the greatest tire. Or, These are the greatest Wheaties or no, you can't. Cause that's a trademark. Uh, the greatest cereal, you right? Say better ingredients, right? better, exactly. pizza. better pizzas. So there's all kinds of, of words that the, uh, they're so common that the, that the, um, that the courts have come up with the theory of mere puffery because they don't want everyone in the world to be uh, a criminal when they haven't made an explicit statement that can be proven true or not true in a, in a quick hearing. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want that. So, um, and I always love the, the term mere puffery. I don't know if, um, you know, uh, as far as, um, statutory textualism i don't know if the mere puffery doctrine really ought to be ought to be uh pushed forward but i think it's very useful uh given the nature of how people are and maybe the nature of even when the statutes are passed people uh the lawmakers maybe didn't think of it so i i am not i'm not coming down one way or another on the textualist uh background of mere puffery but um I think what we it has we, a long pedigree. It has, you can say that yeah, for it. Exactly. It's now a, that we're looking at the historical bases for everything. <laughs> exactly. Puffery survives. Yes, it was not. It was not. Oh, yes. These are these are wonderful. You can say it's wonderful, right? That's another <laughs> one. Ah, it's, it's it's a wonderful product, and um, and and uh, and you can't be penalized for that. So you um, just can't say it's blueberry juice if it's not blueberry no, juice. That's apparently. true, and uh, a lot of cases on how much blueberry juice, right? So, uh, cause that's an ascertainable fact. And so, um, I think that, uh, this case is going to, um, hopefully, uh, push forward that idea that commercial speech is not some sort of, um, uh, backwater of, uh, speech rights, because really it's speech that Americans engage in more than almost any other, except daily conversation. Uh, it's commercial, um, nation. Especially John, he's big on the mere puffery on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Only file. We're not allowed to say uh, brand names, I guess. But uh, as as you know, there is a a diet 
soda or pop that I, I have I have extolled extensively um, for a long time. But in any I event, just meant John always has the best taste. <laughs> All right, we'll be back in a little bit. Welcome back to Administrative Static. We filed a an amicus brief uh, this week in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in a, a pair of uh, consolidated cases, McDonald v. Lawson and Kouris v. Lawson. McDonald v. Lawson is up from the Central District of California. Kouris v. Lawson is up from the Southern District of California. And these are two cases, uh, well, the McDonald case lost uh, below and the Kouris case was stayed after the, uh, after the McDonald case was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. And Kouris then appealed, saying to the Ninth Circuit, essentially, hey, our case is stayed, and we want to challenge that. So they're now up on appeal at the Ninth Circuit. These cases are similar to the Hogue case that NCLA has brought against Governor Newsom. Uh, these, these plaintiffs chose to, to sue. I think Christina Lawson is is maybe the, the head of, uh, of uh, a relevant agency in, in California. Uh, but uh, in any event, the issues in the case are similar to the issues in our Hogue case, and that is whether or not uh, AB 2098 is, uh, uh, violates the First Amendment and whether it violates a 14th Amendment uh, due process of law. And the as I say, uh, the McDonald case coming up from the Central District lost below, uh, and that means that the judge in that case found that the law did not violate uh, the First Amendment. And we filed an amicus brief to explain why our judge, Judge Shub, in the Eastern District of California, who you may recall when Janine Yunus uh, was with us recently, uh, Judge Shub ruled in our favor and and uh, preliminarily enjoined. Uh, AB 2098. So what did Judge Shub get right uh, that these uh, other judges uh, got wrong or, or have failed to reach uh, so far? Well, the district court's holding in the Central District of California was that the plaintiffs were unlikely to succeed on the merits of their First uh, Amendment claim because, uh, he said, um, uh, well, he said that, and I think that it was based on a misunderstanding of the prevailing case law, because what the prevailing case law says is that laws that discriminate based on viewpoint that punish certain expression of certain ideas or opinions are presumptively uh, unconstitutional. And we've seen that uh, in the Mattal v. Tam case uh, from the Supreme Court, which was the case about the slants uh, ban. We've seen that going back to uh, Rosenberger, uh, on, on viewpoint discrimination being a particularly egregious form of, of content uh, discrimination. And yet, uh, and so when you look at, at the, 
I think both the text and the legislative history of AB 2098, it's pretty easy to see that it's a thinly veiled attempt uh, to silence people who disagree with the government's favored view on these COVID-19 uh, issues. And um, the, um, although the final version of the statute was uh, somewhat better than the initial version of the statute, the legislative record really shows an intent on the part of the lawmakers to suppress core political speech and to really use the law in a way that weaponizes uh, it and, and allows other people to silence doctors such as McDonald plaintiffs and certainly such as uh, the Hogue plaintiffs. And if you, if you turn to the, uh, to the language of the statute uh, itself, it talks about misinformation and disinformation, the particular thing that we were talking with um, with Janine about uh, and that and that uh, Judge uh, Shubb focused on was this standard that is used uh, in the law. Uh, there's already a standard uh, under not just California law, but really um, really a standard under every law uh, or under every state's law for standard of care. And so when this uh, statute makes it um, illegal for doctors to share false information that's contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care, that standard of care part is already part of the law. And so the only thing that got added by the statute is this false information that's contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. And I think that what the other judges got wrong and that we're hoping the Ninth Circuit will get right uh, is, uh, is that contemporary scientific consensus is not really something, I mean, it's like nailing jello to the wall, John, to try to figure out what contemporary scientific consensus is, particularly on something that's changing so frequently in terms of, uh, of what the consensus is. I mean, something that, that the government, the CDC, was saying is true six months ago. Now they're saying is false, and it was true and, six months before that. And the other thing is, uh, where is the consensus? Because it used to be doctors there was consensus in their community. But if you looked at COVID, the consensus of what the CDC, if the consensus is what the government said, our government agencies had a different consensus than the ones in Europe. And, and the whole idea of scientific community is everywhere, right? And how could it be that the scientific convention in Germany was different from the United States if there really was a consensus? Well, and that's and that's part of the you know, part of the problem that we've that you've uh, unveiled through uh, some of the some of the social media censorship work you've done is that there really is, really was an artificially constructed consensus uh, here by um, by work that was done by the government uh, to silence the perspectives of some people who had some very well-credentialed scientists who had views that were uh, not keeping uh, with uh, what the government's current view uh, of the science uh, was. Um, but, in any, but in any event, the, um, the other thing that, that uh, we point to in this brief is that the people who were responsible for getting this bill written and through the legislature had been threatening to use it to revoke the medical licenses of people like our clients, like Dr. Hogue, uh, and also like uh, Dr. McDonald and the other other folks represented 
uh, in this lawsuit from the Central District of California. And if AB 2098 were truly as benign as the government tries to portray it as in, in its uh, filings with the court, then these physician scolds uh, who are familiar with the law would not think that its enactment would provide them an opportunity to report their fellow physician plaintiffs to disciplinary authorities and strip them of their medical licenses. But they seem to think that it will do that. And for the same reason that they think it will do that, the law is chilling the physicians and keeping them from you know, giving their uh, honest opinion about things. The, um, there's also this uh, notion, you were just talking about commercial speech, John. Well, the NIFLA case uh, came up out of the uh, Ninth Circuit and uh, had to do with uh, whether or not you could uh, order folks at, uh, uh, at uh, certain kinds of, of uh, family, well, I guess, I guess it was the other way around, right? NIFLA was a, a non-abortion clinic, a right. sort of family planning clinic. Could you order people there to, uh, to share or to give information about abortion options or other right. kinds of options? And the Supreme Court said, well, the Ninth Circuit, I believe it said, yes, you could order that. And then the Supreme Court said, no, uh, you can't uh, order that. Uh, the Supreme Court had rejected in, the, in so doing the claim that professional speech gets a reduced level of uh, First Amendment protection. And that's one of the things that, that we think that the lower court got wrong here as well. It seemed to, to, to not be sensitive to the fact that, uh, that there, there isn't a different category uh, of speech uh, for professionals. So we'll see what the court does with that. The, the other issue uh, in the case is the 14th Amendment right to due process of law. We believe that, uh, that the McDonald plaintiffs, like the Hogue plaintiffs, that their, uh, their 14th Amendment rights were, were violated because the law is unconstitutionally vague. And, and this gets back to uh, what John was, was talking about a minute ago, that you know, who's consensus? And you've got, the, you've got the board of the Medical Board of California here that's comprised half doctors, half non-doctors. Are the doctors the ones who get to decide what the consensus is? Is it the medical board? Is it the attorney general? Uh, I mean, in practice, John, it would be the prosecutor who brings the charges, right? And, and you'd be putting your license on the line in an extremely undeterministic way. It's not like there's a clear line and then you either cross this line or not. So that is that is the thing. If, if they tell you you can't say that, you know, when the stars are in alignment, uh, if you if you go and sit under the moon, you'll be cured. This isn't what we're talking about, right? No, not at all. No, we're talking about something that's far more uh, uh, contested right. than, than that kind of thing. And Judge Shubb uh, in the Eastern District of California in the Hogue case, he was very sensitive to this point. And uh, I think the, the great quote from that case, and, and we, we block quote this in, in our uh, brief to the Ninth Circuit, Judge Shubb says, who determines whether a consensus exists to begin with? If a consensus does exist, among whom must the consensus exist? For example, practicing physicians or professional organizations or medical researchers or public health officials, or perhaps a combination in which geographic area must the consensus exist? California or the United States or the world? What level of agreement constitutes a consensus? A plurality, a majority, a supermajority? How recently in time must the consensus have been established to be considered contemporary? And what source or sources should physicians consult to determine what the consensus is at any given time, perhaps peer-reviewed scientific articles or clinical guidelines from professional organizations or public health recommendations, the statute provides no means of understanding what scientific consensus 
uh, refers to what scientific consensus refers. And that's really the, the nub of the problem is there's no way for any one doctor at any point in time to know whether they're violating the statute. Well, what does that lead someone to do? Well, if it's your entire livelihood on the line with your medical license, it leads you to silence yourself so that you don't run the risk. And, and you know what it also does? It stops you from saying true information. When I, when I was a plaintiff's attorney, there were these two oral maxil facial surgeons who found out that bisphosphonates caused jaw death. And they would say this. And everyone would say, no, no, that's not true. Well, within six years, that was the consensus. This type of law would also stop those two doctors, Ruggiero and Marx, from saying what was absolutely true that yeah. they had identified. And there's great examples of that throughout the history of medicine, right? There, there were doctors who were making the case that ulcers were caused uh, by a bacterial infection. Everybody said, oh, oh, no, no, that's not right. Well, it turned out that was true, and you can treat it with antibiotics. Or the fact that Rye syndrome uh, was caused by getting uh, aspirin, that was something that So, uh, bottom line is, we need to do a, uh, we need to judge, judges in the Ninth Circuit to follow what Judge Chubb said in the Eastern District of California. Not with the prejudice that in the southern and the of California will keep you posted.